So I want to start out today with this image. You may have seen it if you were at Easter Sunday services here at church two years ago when we gave it out as a prayer card. This is Eastern Orthodox icon of the resurrection. And it's one of my favorites because it shows Jesus powerfully bursting out of Hades and not doing it by himself. He grasps Adam and Eve by the wrists and practically yanks them up out of the grave, raising them up from death to eternal life. Icon of the resurrection. And thanks, Karen. We can stop the screen share now. Today, in Mark's gospel, we heard the first healing miracle that happens in this gospel. Jesus has been in the synagogue and has cast out a demon from someone, but this is the first healing of physical sickness. And he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And to be honest, for, the, for a long time, I found this story a bit disappointing in what happens after the healing. Jesus took her by the hand and lifted her up, and then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And something inside me says, wait, didn't she even get to take a break? This mother-in-law just has to go back to serving people? You know, when Jesus heals a little girl later in the gospel, at least he tells the people around to give her something to eat. So this mother-in-law gets to work, serving. And first century gender roles were what they were. And of course, we have plenty of those gender roles still with us today. And so it can be easy to see this story as just another example. But I began to see something more in this story thanks to two words. The first one is the word in Greek for lifted up. And the second one is the word for serve. Lifted up. This is the exact same word that in other places gets translated as raised up. And it's the exact word that's also used of Jesus when he is raised up in the resurrection. And so this little word, lifted up, raised up, as he grabs her by the hand, might help us see this story of Jesus grasping Simon's mother-in-law by the hand and raising her up as a kind of icon, a kind of foretaste of the resurrection, a kind of miniature version of what's yet to come. And not just for Jesus, not just Jesus is being raised up, but all humanity being raised up with Simon's mother-in-law as the exemplar as a new Adam and Eve. So lifted up and then served. Because this word, and then she served them, is the source of our word deacon. This word for service has given us the word of a servant leader in the church. And there are just two other places in Mark's gospel where this word is used. One is where Mark describes the women who provide for Jesus and his disciples in their travels, women who serve almost as patrons, women of some means, women of leadership, who provide for, serve, facilitate the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. And the other place where this word is used is where Jesus tells his disciples about himself. In one of the pivotal passages of the whole gospel, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Or if you like, the Son of Man came not to be deaconed to, but to deacon. So to practice service, 
diakonia is to do what Jesus does. It's to be identified with Jesus. It's to join him in his work. Because in God's eyes, service is not humiliation. In God's eyes, service is the greatest honor of all. So it may be less that Simon's mother-in-law is healed from her fever so she can get back to work. And more that she serves in this story as a kind of icon of each of us, raised up to serve. This is what God does. This is God's pattern. God raises up so that we may serve in the service that is power, in the service that is perfect freedom. That's what God is doing always and everywhere. He sets people free, not so they can lord it over others, but so they can join in God's own work of service for the life of the world. Now this week, I've been thinking a lot about one particular servant leader. I haven't seen the film yet, but a documentary came out this week about her life, Polly Murray. And you may be familiar with Polly Murray, or you may not, because she is one of the most undersung civil rights leaders of the 20th century. But let me invite you, if you don't know much about Polly Murray, to get to know her, because she is one of the great treasures of the Episcopal Church. She's one of our saints, literally. In 2018, she was added to the Episcopal Church's calendar of lesser feasts and fasts. And so she's commemorated on the 2nd of July each year. And this month is a good time to remember Polly Murray. February, of course, is Black History Month. And Polly Murray, among other things, was the first black woman ordained as a priest in the Episcopal Church. That happened in 1977, right after the church began ordaining women. But before that happened, she had had a long career as a law professor and a legal scholar and a central figure not only in the civil rights movement, but also in the women's movement, this double role, and also a poet. She wrote a book in 1950 about segregation laws in different states that Thurgood Marshall would later call the Bible of the civil rights movement. She was a friend of Eleanor Roosevelt and a mentor to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Jamie has just posted in the chat that she appears in the movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And in fact, it's the makers of that documentary that have now made this documentary. And they discovered Polly Murray through their research on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Polly Murray also worked with Betty Friedan as one of the co-founders of the National Organization for Women. A lot farther back in 1940, at the age of 30, she and a friend were arrested for refusing to move out of the white section of a bus in Virginia. 15 years before Rosa Parks so famously did the same thing in Alabama. Now, Polly Murray faced a lot of obstacles. She was orphaned as a child and raised by her grandparents and aunts. She moved on her own to New York and worked her way through college, waiting tables sometimes in restaurants that wouldn't serve her because she was black, but would employ her. And she was very used to being one of only two or three black people in the room and two or three women in the room, and the only one who was both. She came up with the phrase Jane Crow to describe what it was like to be both black and a woman, to face these two forms of obstacle. But she also struggled with her experience of gender and sexuality. She wore men's clothes and short hair. She fell in love with women. 
And she changed her name from Pauline to this more ambiguous name, Polly. And it's not clear how Polly would have identified in today's terms. Perhaps as a gender non-conforming woman, perhaps as a transgender man, perhaps as a non-binary person. So much so that Polly Murray's biographers disagree about what pronouns to use, especially earlier in Polly's life. In the later part of her life, she used she and her pronouns and at least publicly identified as a woman, was active in the women's movement. But what's clear is that Polly Murray spent life as somebody who didn't fit comfortably into society's categories. Now there's something very significant about Polly Murray's family history because her great-grandmother, Harriet, was born into slavery. And she was enslaved to a white woman in North Carolina named Mary Smith. Mary Smith's brother was a lawyer named Sidney who did something very common among white men in that place and time. He forced himself on his sister's slave many times. And the child born from that rape was named Cornelia and she was born into slavery too. And so her aunt, Mary Smith, was also her owner. Now Mary Smith had young Cornelia baptized into the Episcopal Church. Mary Smith was a devout worshiper at the Chapel of the Cross there in North Carolina, and, she, and so Cornelia grew up in that faith. But she had to worship in the balcony with the other slaves. Some years went by, the Civil War happened. And after the Civil War, there were a couple of decades when Black Episcopalians still worshiped in the same churches as whites. But as the reaction against Reconstruction set in, in the later part of the 1800s, white Southern Christians were no longer willing to share their churches with Blacks. And so a Black Episcopal church was formed, St. Titus's. And so Polly Murray would grow up with St. Titus's as the church of her childhood, the church that shaped her faith. And that faith, despite coming to her in these circumstances of oppression, of domination, that faith was still something that she found sustained her. That faith for her became a means not of domination, but of liberation. And so it sustained her through those years of struggle and advocacy, and it led her later in her life to become this pioneer of women's ordination. And so right after Polly Murray was ordained, she went back to North Carolina to celebrate her first Eucharist at the Chapel of the Cross. In that same space where her grandmother Cornelia had been baptized and had worshiped in the balcony. And Polly came to stand at the altar. And later in her memoir, she writes about that moment. She says, Whatever future ministry I might have as a priest, it was given to me that day to be a symbol of healing. All the strands of my life had come together. Descendant of slave and of slave owner. I had already been called poet, lawyer, teacher, and friend. Now, I was empowered to minister the sacrament of one in whom there is no north or south, no black or white, no male or female, 
only the spirit of love and reconciliation drawing us all toward the goal of human wholeness. I was empowered to minister, she writes. And minister is that same word again, that same word, another translation of that word for to serve. Empowered to serve. And she uses the phrase human wholeness. The life of being healed, the life of being whole. That's the life that we are raised up to by Jesus. And that is the life that we are called to share with others. A life of healing, a life of service. Polly Murray was raised up to serve. May you and I receive that same healing and that same raising and also that same commission to love and serve in Jesus' name.